Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Matt Downing. I'm Julie Cook. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you listening as usual. I'm super excited to be here with my co-hosts, Matt and Julia, as you just heard. And I'm also excited to welcome Ulka Joshi Hansen. How you doing, Ulka? I'm fine, thanks. How are you guys this morning? Yeah, yeah, pretty good, pretty good. For those of you listening out there, you may have heard our last interview with Kelly Young from Education Reimagined, where we talked with her and our other guest, Grace Kiboko, about um, learner-centered movements in education. And we're here to talk with Ulka a little bit more about um, her experiences and her upcoming book. Um, But before we get too much into that, Ulka, there's a lot to introduce for you. And I would love for you to kind of take the take the reins here and share with us a little bit about yourself. I know that you're a consultant, you're an author, you've been working in education for a while. Um, what else can you tell us about uh, the work that you're doing? So um, thanks so much. I come to this as a mother. I have two boys, they're 11 and 13. Um, and as an educator, I started as a teacher Um, early childhood, elementary, and special education in Newark, New Jersey in the late 90s. And I would say the theme of my entire career has been trying to figure out why it is that we feel stuck in a mode of education that people these days have have come to term the industrial model, Um, which given my own experiences as a student, I've lived and studied in about six different countries. And how America does education is so very different from other cultures um, and communities that come from a more communitarian, more whole human lens. And so my professional career has been really devoted to trying to understand that more, which I think segues with the conversations you've been having with folks about this idea of learner-centered education and both the current and the historical movements that have kind of pushed against the industrial model with this other narrative of what the purpose of education is and who young people are. Um, I'm currently, as you said, um, an independent consultant, but I did work with Education Reimagined and have had the pleasure of kind of working with and engaging with a lot of your other guests, kind of networks like Expeditionary Learning and Big Picture Learning, um, Getting Smart. I worked for a while with Boundless, which was a startup aimed at really trying to unconstrain adults, um, educators, students from the bounds um, of our existing system. And then I have a couple of other side projects going on. So yeah, I have my fingers in a lot of different different places, which is fun. I would describe you as potentially a busy person. Is that, <laughs> it sounds like there's so many projects that you have kind of going on. How do you balance all that? Um, you know, I think the idea of balance is what, that I've given up. I think the idea is like in the moment, what can I do as well as I can do it, knowing that over time, the whole of it will somehow like sort itself out. Um, And I think with COVID and lots of time at home with my kids, it's been really interesting to be reminded about why it is we do this, right? That at the end of the day, I do education because I believe young people need to know themselves, to need, need to be embedded in their communities, in their families, in these kind of healthy relationships. And so as they remind me, they have lots of opinions, which I suppose is not shocking, Um, but they, you know, they remind me, they're like, mom, but really this is about us. Like you need to be home. So like everyone else, right? We try and try and do our best every single day. That's awesome. And, and really, really admirable. I mean, 
education is tough work and you've been doing it for a long time. I, I want to kind of go back to your start in Newark schools and you said you were doing early childhood there and Newark isn't that far from Philly and has been um, quite often in the news in the last five, six, seven, ten years. Uh, and I'm wondering kind of what were some of those lessons that you learned from your first few years teaching? And maybe you can speak to that specifically for our listeners who might be in their first couple of years as teachers uh, and who are thinking, man, this is really hard right now, especially with COVID. Um, I, 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 it's hard to see kind of the long-term um, impact of what I could be, potentially be learning right now. So I would love for you just to share a few things that uh, working in those Newark schools, however many years ago, taught you. So, you know, to talk about my experience teaching in Newark, I have to talk about my training. So I went through a conventional, kind of a traditional teacher preparation program, but I lived, I went to school and lived close to where I grew up. And so I made it part of my own training to go back and shadow as many of my old teachers from kindergarten through the end of middle school as I could and some high school teachers. And many of those teachers were the last of a generation I think went into the teaching profession and stayed for a career, right? So 30, 40 years. And I just remember that the conversations that I had with them were so much focused. It was as though they'd been teaching for long enough to have learned that every young person they worked with was an individual. And that at the end of the day, that was the most important thing for them to be focusing on. And I remember I went back to visit Mrs. Longo, who I actually did not have in fourth grade. She was the teacher who, and in third grade, when you opened your report card, there was a little line with your teacher for the next year. And if Mrs. Longo's name was on that line, you spent the summer mortal fear because she was known as a very but I went back because every single one of my friends who had her loved her. Like their loyalty to her was unflinching. And I spent two weeks in her classroom. And I remember very vividly, there was this little boy who was sleeping in the kind of back corner of her classroom. And so the whole morning I was just like watching because she didn't say anything to him and she ran a tight ship. She didn't say anything. The kids were doing their work. And I kept expecting her to kind of like, you know, not yell at him, but kind of like wake him up. And at the end of the day, I asked him and I said, like, what was going on with him? And she said, you know, his parents are getting divorced. He's having a really hard time. He's not sleeping. Um, so she's like, I just let him do what he needs to do. I said, you know, don't you worry that like by letting him get away with that, that the other kids will get the message that they can do whatever they want. And she looked at me like with these like, she has like beady, like intense eyes. And she's like, every one of my kids knows that I love them and they know that if i'm letting him sleep it's because he needs to sleep and no she's like they are not going to question like why i let him do that and i just the the sensibility of her emotion in that like it's still it makes me emotional because it was such a powerful lesson in the idea that you need to see the human who's in front of you and you need to serve them and so if i forwarded back to my time as a teacher I think what was so frustrating when I was teaching third grade for my first year was that I was seeing these little humans that had all of these needs and Newark was in the middle of sort of doing No Child Left Behind before No Child Left Behind was a thing in 98. And so it was, let's give kids 
you know, the little apps and the little uh, computer games and let's do literacy and math interventions and test them every week and get the data and look at the numbers. And all of the visions that I had, and I had a couple of co-teachers of like, we would do salsa dancing and we would teach science through like experiments that were kind of messy and hands-on and there was just no time. Um, and I just, the, the tension between what I felt like I had learned from my teacher mentors about what education was supposed to be and what I was being asked to do, like I couldn't do it. And so the educators who are in classrooms today or are gonna be on video calls and you know, watching young people who are, who are struggling um, with the world right now, like that to me is the, is the reminder, right? They are human beings. They are wired to learn. They are wired to grow. And, you know, Maslow said it, like you need to know you need to have a sense of safety and belonging and, you know, purpose. And so if we can focus on that, even as the rest of the system can sometimes feel like it's having arguments about how are they going to get through their standards and are we going to test, are we not going to test? Like they are going to remember you and they're going to remember how you made them feel and how you saw them and gave them a space to sort of be themselves. I don't even, there's so much to say. <laughs> I like don't even know where to start, but I, but I will just share a, a similar story um, because so much of what you were just saying resonates with a, a, a number of experiences that I've had um, as a teacher. When I first started teaching here in Philadelphia, I was at a school for kids who were over age, undercredited, on the verge of dropping out, had already dropped out, or were trying to come back and get a high school diploma. And I had this girl named Nikki who would come to my class every day. And we'd get into math lesson, you know, maybe less than five minutes and and she would fall asleep in this chair in the back of the room and um for the first probably week i was like nikki what are you doing what are you doing coming to my coming to my classroom and just sleeping and so one day i sat out in the in the in the hallway with her and said level with me here you know i i'm tired of asking you to wake up if you need to sleep i understand and want to be respectful of that need what's going on and she said you know i have three younger siblings at home all under the she was she was 17 or 18 all under the age of 10 and when i get home my mom comes home and then immediately leaves for her second job in the evening and i have to then make dinner make sure all of my siblings are doing their homework and then sometimes they get into fights and i don't want to have to break up those fights but i do anyway and then mom comes home and I um, have to then try to do homework for school and then try to get some sleep, except for we only have one bedroom in the house. And so sleeping with my three younger siblings is really challenging. And so I come here to school and it's the first time in my day that I have any sort of respite and quiet from the rest of my life. And from that day forward, I was just like, I can't. I can't ask a, a kid to do math work <laughs> when they need to take a nap, you know? And that's the, I think that's sort of exactly what you're pointing to is that it's so important that we're, we're looking at our students and treating our students as, as individuals. There's a slow, go slow to go fast element to that, right? Which is you can try and push people um, beyond the bounds of like what their humanity allows. And you might get the short-term gains 
out of the performance, but that's not sustainable. Whereas if you can take the time up front to really create the conditions and the connections and the sense of being known and belonging, then I think young people are empowered and knowing Grace, um, you know, I'm sure she reflected on this last week, but like, if you can, if you can do that for them, then all of a sudden they are an asset in their education in the sense that they begin to own it and drive it. And, you know, when we talk about networks in different types of schools, I think that's one of the most striking things about schools that I would say are learner centered is that they don't see young people only as a sort of like product or a liability. They see them as part of the assets that they have to, to help learning happen. Um, and they unlock that by putting in the time up front around relationships and agency and those sorts of um, skills and dispositions. So you just hit on two key points that I, I want to um, kind of hear your thoughts about. And first is that we're, we're in this series, hopefully at the end of this series on networks, and some of your work now, um, you've gone from, you know, early childhood in Newark to now working with you know, large groups of schools through net through networks and through your consultancy and you know all of the other things that you you've been um, you've been kind of focusing your energy on, and I would just love to hear from you a little bit more about um, how you see networks impacting schools and the work of schools. Sure, um, and so I'm a I'm a philosopher by training, and so like words matter to me, right? And how we use words, and I think we often use networks. To, to point at a lot of different things. So sometimes we use the term network to say, okay, this is a, a set of schools that all calls itself a certain thing, whether it's expeditionary learning or Montessori or Waldorf, right? Or big picture learning. Sometimes I think we can think of networks as um, organized and related entities that sort of operate as a collective inside of a shared set of values and ways of being. And so I sort of like to overlay those two things. And I was saying to Matt at one point, I wish there were a video because I have an image in my mind, uh, which I'm going to try and talk off of. But if you could think of schools in three buckets, right, and move from the furthest left to the furthest right. So the furthest left bucket I tend to think of as, as networks of schools or individual schools that operate inside of what we think of as this industrial model mindset, right? The orientation to their work is the orientation that emerged in Europe sort of in the 17, 1800s with this idea of how do we get the most kids through a process in the most efficient way possible. And it really is about dumping knowledge and certain skills into them that are going to allow them to to kind of slot into society the way that they need to. The middle bucket of schools, I tend to think of as either networks of schools or schools individually, that their orientation to their work is what I would call whole child innovative reform. They are the schools that recognize what doesn't work with the schools in the far left-hand side column, and they try and bolt on solutions, but it's like this really wide-ranging um, set of schools because they'll bolt on things like socio-emotional curriculum or project-based learning or culturally responsive practice or trauma-informed pedagogy. But they basically have taken the old model and they try and like stick these things on. And for educators who are listening to this, this may sound really familiar. These are the initiatives that districts undertake or the grant that you get or the training that you go to. And what ends up happening is because these programs and these bolt-ons are not always in line 
with the industrial model of education, they don't work. They sort of, they push against each other. And oftentimes we bolt on so many things that the system sort of buckles under its own weight because there's too much to do and too much to keep in our minds. And the furthest right bucket, I think of as human-centered, learner-centered is a term that some people used. I would say sort of a liberatory design. And the orientation of those schools is a totally different worldview than the worldview that birthed the industrial model. And some people would call it more quote unquote Eastern, and I'm not trying to sort of essentialize, I mean, my family's Indian, but like it is when you think about Western versus Indian, uh, Eastern or indigenous, but it is the way of being that kind of sees all of us as part of this interconnected whole. And so the way in which it thinks about education stems from an entirely different sense of who people are what our relationship is with each other, with the broader community and world. And so it redefines the entire purpose of education. And those schools design themselves out of that different sense of purpose and a different sense of what it means to know things. And so some of the networks that I would say, networks the way I first said it, which is like titles of schools or titles of, of programming. Montessori was one of the first European thinkers to really develop out a model of education that emerged out of that more holistic, humanistic mindset. Um, Rudolf Steiner and Waldorf schools are one of them. I think big picture learning, a lot of its, um, its principles of its founders, Dennis and Elliot, um, would fit into that bucket. Expeditionary learning, Kurt Hahn, in many ways sort of thought about that. So, and the reason I think this is important is because when we cluster schools together and the, the schools that we often tend to lump in the same category are the second and third bucket schools. So the middle one and the far right-hand side one. But what my research has shown, and I'm happy we can sort of go back into pieces of this, is that because they are founded on very different notions of the nature of knowledge, of how learning happens, of what human development is and how it unfolds, we lump them together as though they can work together, but they can't because they just don't gel. And it's not that one is any better than the other, right? I wanna be really clear here. Like we have an obligation to make our education system as, as strong as it can be for as many students as possible. But as I think someone like Kelly Young from Ed Reimagined would have said, like you need to create space for the people who are operating inside of those learner-centered, human-centered, third-bucket schools. You need to give them the freedom from existing systems and structures that were designed for the industrial model and allow them space and time to create new systems, new policies, new ways of operating that are going to allow them to thrive. Um, and, and so to me, part of the reason that it's important to think about networks is that you allow the people who are trying to do the same type of work to do that work together um, and to therefore be able to kind of move further faster than if they have to kind of talk across mindsets and ways of operating and doing their work. Wow. <laughs> I've never, um, I've never heard anyone talk. I mean, I'm just taking a moment to process what you're saying about why school reform doesn't work. I mean, I think you're, I, I've always had this, this notion that it wasn't going to work because you're trying to, you know, fit the round peg in the, in the square hole or whatever, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to do enough. Um, and that's, and that's really where I think we are in this moment too, where we're trying to reimagine there's schools that are doing this 
this moment in, in the pandemic really well. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how what you're saying also applies to this moment that we're in as schools are trying to reinvent themselves in the next three weeks uh, to, to relaunch. Yeah. So there's a, um, a network of organizations uh, that is, is roughly organized under an umbrella called All In This Together. And one of Andy Calkins um, is helping to spearhead it. And they are undertaking a project or hoping to undertake a project on what made them so prepared. So really trying to take a look at schools and kind of programs to see who was able to pivot really well, really quickly, or you know, more quickly, more easily, more successfully than others. And although this is not yet kind of the a framing, uh, or it's not a frame that's yet being used, the one that I just laid out, my own sense based on sort of conversations and kind of watching the field is that the, sc the schools and programs that were best able to pivot were in that third bucket. They were the ones that were learner-centered, human-centered, kind of more liberatory design and practice because they had done the work, right, of really having young people have a sense of who they were, what their role in their own education was, and sort of having ownership and agency over that. And they had systems and structures where the adults were not seen as sort of driving or fully in charge of the process, but rather that it was a co-created, co-constructed process that wasn't just happening inside the boundaries of a school or a classroom. And so when all of a sudden the pandemic happened and made it hard for people to go inside of the structure of school, those schools already had some of the foundational pieces that they need, needed about knowing their kids, the kids knowing themselves, the kids having developed some of the habits and dispositions and mindsets that they needed to kind of be like, oh, well, it turns out I'm at home. That doesn't mean learning doesn't happen because learning isn't something that only happens inside of a classroom when someone's telling me what to do. So I think it's going to be really interesting as there is more effort put into that to start to articulate, right, what are some of the, the practices, the ways of being um, and the ways of operating. And I do think that we're going to find what I would refer to as those kind of third bucket schools, the, the human-centered liberatory design schools are gonna be the ones that, that are the ones that were able to pivot most. And it's because of all of the, these reasons, right? That they were better equipped to become distributed um, and sort of operate and still do the work and the adventure of learning regardless of whether they were physically together or not. And some part of that is not only the student um, aligned with that kind of, I can pivot to work at home, um, and I have the habits of mind in order to approach my learning, um, I'm in charge of my learning, um, but then also the adults um, talking about, you know, leadership, a more distributed model, um, a shared leadership approach really, really comes into play here when we are trying to reinvent um, and, and take ownership over, over change. Uh, so um, all of those things have to be in place. And if they're not, there were glaring differences uh, between schools that were able to pull off the spring and not. Right, and I think it goes even further. So a vi uh, and again, a visual I'll try and sort of draw out, right? Imagine if you had a bunch of concentric circles, so just layered one on top of the other, outside of the other, starting with this notion of purpose. What's the purpose of education? The next one out is kind of what are the developmental needs of kids? The next one out is how, what do we know about how learning happens? And then in light of those three questions, you design the what, the curriculum of what we teach 
And then around that, you develop kind of systems. And the systems include human capital. But the other thing that I think you start to see in these third bucket schools is that they believe that learning happens when it is contextualized and really relevant to the lives of young people in their communities. And so one of the things that they are always actively doing, not just as a family engagement strategy, but they really are putting young people out into the community and they're bringing the community in to the school to help with the learning. And so what ends up happening is that in these schools, caregivers and families, kind of community resources and partners, they're all kind of singing off the same song sheet in the sense of they understand what they're up to, they understand why they do what they do, they understand what their roles are. And so it goes beyond even just the student and the, the, the sort of young learner and the adult learner or the facilitator in the form of a teacher. It goes to the kind of family and community and larger kind of set of resources um, that help them do their work in the everyday. And so it, it, it's, it's this really powerful kind of network that's able to pivot in some ways together because they already have shared language and understanding around what they're doing. And it sort of answers some of the questions around how do we further resource schools, knowing that funding is is continues to be a sincere struggle at the state and the federal level, and even at the local level. What you're suggesting here is that the development of a micro local level network within the school community and within the existing quote unquote real world community that's around the school allows the school to capitalize on the existence of expertise in that arena, the existence of space and other adults that may not be, you know, typical teachers within a classroom. And that really blows the walls out literally and figuratively of schools as institutions within themselves and puts students in a position within their locality to be true change agents in a lot of cases, and also engagers with the adults in their community to help the adults realize that, hey, education just doesn't have to happen in a classroom by a teacher, right? right. And in some ways, it, and that's the funny thing, right? I think the future of education is actually much more aligned with how human societies have always educated their young, which is this notion that you somehow take young people out of their families, out of their community, out of the world, stick them in a building, and that this is where their learning is supposed to happen. Like that is a very modern Western European conception of education. Up until that point for millennia and generations, the way young people were educated was inside of their communities, learning the things that their communities did, learning the things that were important for them to know to contribute um, and, and to sort of be part of it. And so if you kind of take that, right, that, that idea, and I'm working here in Denver on a couple of different initiatives and watching different neighborhoods try and pivot. But you know, one of the big, one of the unintended consequences, I think, in a city like Denver, where we did school choice, uh, where kids are not going to school in their local neighborhoods, is all of a sudden it's been really hard for people to pivot and sort of say, okay, we know that all of our kids go to school sort of in this neighborhood. And in this neighborhood is this rec center and this park and this church that's empty right now and this, you know, whatever. So how can we collectively think about how to redistribute the things that need to be done, the responsibilities, the space, the, you know, time, et cetera, within a known community? 
And I think human human societies have always relied in some ways, like when we've needed to circle the wagons in time of crisis, we've we've relied on these informal social connections and networks to be able to do that. And I think, yes, we've there are amazing things that have come out of our ability to give people more choice and distribute our social networks and make them more diffuse. I think we're seeing in this moment one of the challenges of that, which is it becomes very hard when all of a sudden there are these restrictions put on you geographically in terms of you know social networks. Like I've got to keep my social networks narrow so that I'm not you know passing the coronavirus outside of it. When those social networks are not geographically proximate, um, so yeah, it's just it's an interesting thing that I hope people will be kind of looking at and thinking about to sort of say. And again, it's not this is not to make what we've been doing or what we've been trying to be evil or technology evil or like, you know, that's not it. It's what's the right balance and how do we need to be thinking about what works in service of what? Um, and the reality that things like this pandemic and whatever and globalization like create certain risks. This is not the last time this is going to happen. Um, and so how can we be smart even as we're, we're dealing with this particular crisis overlaid over a bunch of social and economic crises that we have in this country around inequity, how can we be thinking about solutions that are forward-looking right, around the reality that, yeah, this, this may happen again? Thinking about um, community and, and networks and, and sort of talking about that for a moment, how have you seen um, networks uh, interact with community in a in a healthy way and in an effective way that's that's really beneficial um you know because you've you've sort of uh, talked about some of the negative effects of sort of school choice so i was just wanted to get your thoughts um on, on that yeah so i mean you know i'll do a, a shout out to one of the more long-standing programs that i think is a model so you think about the met school in providence um or the met school in oakland they are part of the big picture learning network and they are sort of among the schools in the network that I would say are sort of those third bucket schools. But you know, they um, they are sort of, they immediately activate and sort of really put effort into getting to know young people's um, families, caregivers, kind of extended networks. They think about the community resources, the cities um, and the localities where they operate as places where, and this is a high school model, where young people can go out and kind of do internships. And these are really robust learning experiences. These are not photocopy staple kind of internships. These are, you are part of an organization or an entity and you're learning how to do work with a mentor there. Um, and so they source the community for the types of resources that will give young people the opportunity to leave the school and actually go out and learn and learn about the things that are of interest to them, whether it's, hey, I want to work in nonprofits, or I think I might want to be a chef, or I want to might, might want to be a fashion designer and want to think about what it means to own my own business, or actually, I don't know, and I want to try all 15 of those things. And so they give kids the opportunity to sort of get out in the world. I think Expeditionary Learning, and I think EL um, has put out some great videos on sort of the ways in which when Expeditionary Learning is done super well for like the younger kiddos, this notion of an expedition, which is we're learning this content Right? We're learning these ideas inside of, of school or through books or whatever. And then we're going to go out into the world. My kids, when they were at Neal School, went out to Florissant and Dinosaur Ridge. And they actually got to do fossil ex excavation to kind of see how the world that they lived in 
and the museum um, and the scientists that were operating were sort of contributing to knowledge when they were, um, you know, learning about energy. They went to NREL and they really got to see, okay, so energy and energy production and climate change, they aren't just these abstract things. Like this is the place where it's generated. So they're, I, I think part of it is they're using the community as ways for kids to sort of understand the real world implications of the ideas that they're learning. And then in many cases, right, I think a lot of people now are thinking about liberatory design process and design thinking where they're sort of saying, okay, let's look out at the world, right? It turns out we don't have to go really far afield to find things that need to be done in our communities, whether it's going to an old, you know, going to an, an elder community and kind of learning from your elders and maybe reading with them or spending time with them or um, Iowa Big in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, they have community partners that put forward projects and young people work in teams to actually contribute to the work of those nonprofits. So they're giving young people this opportunity to feel relevant inside of their inside of their communities, to be seen as productive members um, of their communities and and you know people who can make a change. And when you think developmentally about young people, that is what they want, right? A person like Montessori knew that. She knew that even three and four and five-year-olds needed to have a sense of pride and contribution that middle school kind of late childhood, early adolescence wanted to have a sense of relevance um, and belonging in their community that young, you know, that later adolescents needed to feel like they were developing a sense of identity and that they could contribute um, to their community or to their school in, in positive ways. And so really give them opportunities to do that so that they're not trying to find a sense of belonging and purpose um, and contribution in ways that we might think of as less healthy, right? Whether it's, um, yeah, whether it's risk-taking kind of in, in extreme ways or looking for a sense of belonging in sort of gangs or other communities that, that say, hey, come, you belong, right? You, you belong to us, um, you are one of us and they don't find it anywhere else. So this is where they find it and it makes complete sense that they would look for that. Yeah, yeah, that's, re that's really helpful to to think about and and the way you illuminated um, how networks could be connected and leveraged um, within uh, communities. I did wanna ask you a bit more about that third bucket, right? It's exciting to think about um, these networks in a third bucket doing uh, interesting and exciting work. Uh, you've mentioned that these uh, networks need space and time to to do this work outside of you know a restrictive model um what, what do you mean by that and and what does that look like to have space and time to to do the work that they need to do i'm going to try not to get too weedy here and if i'm getting and <laughs> tell me right but so let me highlight a couple things that are super important about those third buckets yeah ways, right they believe that their purpose is about helping create young people who have what they need to thrive in life. And part of that is academic, quote unquote, and then it's a whole bunch of other stuff. It's social, emotional, it's social capital, it's a sense of identity. They believe that learning happens by giving young people an opportunity to sort of create and construct meaning and to make things meaningful and relevant um, to them. They believe that knowledge and what counts as knowledge um, is not only sort of academic knowledge that you know in your head. They believe that it is about movement and intuition and sort of forms of knowing that don't meet a sort of modern Western construct of knowledge. They believe that you can demonstrate knowledge 
in ways other than just writing things down or take in knowledge in ways other than just reading them. Um, and they, they ground themselves very much in a sense of community. So everything they do, they do is grounded in the sense of like having constructed community. So let's say you're a charter startup and you are a first bucket, you're a third bucket school. You are a school where for the first one or two years, you are probably very intentionally going through the process of helping young people own um, the culture of the school. You are asking them to begin to own their learning so that it's not that we're going to push you and force you. It's that you better figure out that if you don't do what you need to do to get out of here, you might be here for eight years. And that takes time. Right, you can't just walk in on day one and say, okay, open your books, we're gonna do common core standards, you know, whatever, what I want to be and start going. So you're spending a few months really building relationship, being building a sense of knowing, building a sense of ownership and agency. Because you believe that learning happens um, at a young person's own rate and pace and time, you're not necessarily gonna see that every eight-year-old is going to learn exactly the same stuff on the same day, in the same pace, the same order. Um, because you believe that you can show learning in different ways, you're not going to believe that giving everybody a standardized test or a unit test is going to allow each of them to demonstrate what they know in the best ways. Um, and so you might be allowing them opportunities to do portfolios of learning or real projects or do a performance or do an exhibition of learning, right? So inside of our existing set, you also believe that learning doesn't always happen inside the school. So it might want to give credit to your student for the work that they do with their scouting troop or with their dance troop, where they are learning skills like working in groups and organizing their time and whatever. So they need to be given the opportunity to answer the question, what does it mean to give credit for learning when it doesn't happen inside the walls of a classroom with a certified teacher? What does it mean to assess learning in ways that are meaningful and still um, hold kids to a to a standard of performance that society would agree is is a, a high one. Um, if it's not going to be on a test, what does it mean to do accountability? If it's not based on standardized test data where we can sort of rank and sort and score kids and schools against each other, and so what they need is time and space to be able to invent some of the new answers to those questions. Right, collective accountability looks really different than the state takes the test score data and cranks it out and then gives you a table of people ranked from first through 100. Um, it probably looks more like an effort that went on in rural Colorado where there were, I might get this wrong, but there were you know a dozen districts, let's say, that started out and they were like, we wanna do student-centered accountability and the way we're gonna do this is we're gonna have school leaders and district leaders go around and visit each other's schools and go in and ask them, what are you trying to do? What do we see when we talk with young people and parents and observe your classrooms and look at student work? And can we reflect back to you what we're seeing and where your areas of strength are and where there are opportunities for you to improve, right? But they need the time and the space to be able to operate in different ways and actually start to say, because the work they're trying to do is super complex. And I will be the first person to say that one of the critiques levied against those third bucket schools, which are often synonymous with sort of progressive education in the US and around the world is that it's too loose, right? It doesn't actually, because the work is so complicated, it doesn't, we haven't figured out all the time how to do 
and systematize the work in ways that really hold everyone to high standards, the solution is not to say, well, it's too hard, let's not do it. The solution is let's give time and space to figure out what sort of supports and systems need to be in place to allow them to do the work that they need and want to do well and give them the space to do it. And I hate using a military analogy, but um, in the military, there is a program called DARPA. And DARPA is essentially the, the section in the military that is given free reign from all of the other constraints and systems and structures of the military because they know that you can't invent new things if you're constantly being pulled back by the existing systems, right? So DARPA is the place where things like computers and artificial intelligence and sort of the technologies that we now take for granted, but were initially invented for the military, it is where they were invented and they were given freedom from the rest of the system. And so I think when it comes to what does it take to allow more of those third bucket schools to, how does it, how do we allow more of them to exist, especially inside of our public system? Um, what you need to do is you need to create this kind of um, space of invention, a space where they are held harmless um, and they are, they are let off the hook for some of our existing accountability metrics and ways of doing things. And they get to define different metrics of success that are aligned with where they want to go. Mm. Thinking about that that DARPA example, right, the military example, and trying to transfer that to schools, which which isn't an, an easy thing to do. Um, where have you seen uh, something like that done well within education? Um, because some people might be listening and like, yeah, that's that's fine and dandy, but but that's not possible. Um, have you seen that? Is that possible? I wouldn't say it's been done kind of at scale. The closest that I would say we have tried to get to it is with our alternative education models, right, in the public system. So everyone sort of agrees that by the time kids get to high school, there are students for whom the conventional system doesn't work. And so we create alternative high schools, alternative pathway programs, that type of thing. And unfortunately, they have been labeled the places where kids go when they are quote unquote sort of not capable or, you know, like unquote dumb, right? Like this is where, and that is not it actually. I think it is finally in high school where we are willing to admit that what we're trying to shove kids into doesn't work. The problem is that the kids had to go through eight years of being like just decimated, right? And beaten down before they're allowed to go into these alternative programs. But in many states, legislators have said, okay, we understand that the metrics of success for them need to be different, that they're, you know, they may need allowances and variances on who teaches there, on standards for graduation, on how you assess whether students are learning. So I think in the public system, it's kind of happened there, but this is exactly what COVID is, right? For a long time, everyone's like, well, you can't possibly do that because how could you with any sense of fairness or equity or whatever, suspend testing or suspend seat time or suspend, you know, whatever. Well, it turns out COVID has done that for us, right? And it is not because of this political party or that political party or because of unions or parents or whoever people normally want to blame, right? They, nobody did this. It happened. So the question is, can you inside of this space that we now have, which is going to be at least, you know, two to three years from an accountability standpoint, because I can guarantee you people are going to come back and they're going to say, look, we can still do testing and we can still do accountability. But if you ask any measurement expert, the fact that we didn't have tests last year, we're not going to have tests this year, it means that your, your link of three continuous years of data, um, which 
I still don't think is enough, but whatever, that link has been broken. So like, let's say, again, I use Denver because I live here. What if it in a place like Denver and in every city in this country, you got the coalition of the willing, the people who were already kind of those third bucket schools or really aspired to be those third bucket schools and were doing that work and you let them opt in, don't force them to do it. And you let the parents in those schools, the, the families in those schools say, yes, we're willing to, to be part of this. And you take that small coalition of the willing and you give them some space. You write out the, everything can be done through a contract. I'm an attorney, right? Through a contract, you let them have that space. You let them set out their measures of success um, and accountability. And you give them the space and the time to organize and you hold them accountable for the metrics that they have set out for themselves that will show that they're getting where they need to go and give them two years, give them two years to kind of see what else um, they can do. And I think it's coinciding, right? All of this is coinciding with a conversation that is happening in education around kind of the way in which people will, you know, like the sort of white supremacy culture, I would say it's more of a modern Western conception of success, of knowledge, of who should be able to teach, right? All these things, there's pushback and communities are saying, no, right? The black community here in, in, in Denver, there's a, a small group um, led by FaithBridge that are saying, you know what? We don't trust schools right now to do right by our children in terms of what they're taught, how they're taught, how they're treated. We want some freedom and flexibility and space. And it is very aligned with what I was just saying, right? We want freedom from the existing systems and structures whose DNA really is imbued with the kind of white supremacy culture that imbues a lot of our systems and structures in this country. Um, and so I think there is a request for this from communities that have not been well served, that are reconceptualizing what educational equity means um, with COVID. And so I think there is a moment to, to dig down and have these conversations and give that freedom. And, you know, this idea that somehow, well, it's too much of a risk. We're, we're all taking a lot of quote unquote risks at the moment, right? The world is changing things out and so to my mind um there is no more or less cost and there's a lot of potential upside it's really fascinating and it, all of what you're saying makes so much sense to me okay i really could spend like two more hours talking with you because there's so much of what you're saying that's like resonating with my doctoral study and the reason why i am interested in educational change and yeah, so much. So I so appreciate you bringing some of these things to this conversation. I want to also just ask you about, maybe a listener is sitting here saying, okay, you got me. I think I might be interested in these third bucket schools or networks or what have you that you're talking about. But I want to know kind of very specific examples of where that's happening. You talked about big picture learning already and EL. Um, I'm curious if you can name just one or two other places in the country that you know about that a teacher who's listening could like, you know, search up on Google or we can link in our podcast description that you think are really doing this sort of stuff right. Yeah. Um, so so a good place to go, you know, shout out to Education Reimagine. They have a map um, that they have, which they're constantly updating. But I would say a lot of the schools, right, that are in that map. And Ed Reed tries really hard to sort of be hearing about those schools, talking with those schools, and so tries to update the map. So that's a really good place to go. Um, Native American Community Academy is a high school um, 
they have a couple of different high schools. Um, I think most Montessori programs, if they are, because um, I'm also trying to think about age bands here, right? I think a lot of people imagine what a reimagined high school is, and I mentioned a couple. So NACA would be one, Iowa Big would be one, a number of the places in the Big Picture Learning Network um, would be among those. And I'm, I'm trying to stay here in the public sector as well. Um, for middle school, I think Avalon um, in Minnesota is a really kind of interesting um, example. And sorry, for high school, I missed a couple. One Stone is private. It's in Idaho. Um, Embers, uh, not Embers. Um, I'm trying to empower community high school in Aurora is a high school program here in Colorado. Yeah, so middle school Avalon, um, I think a lot of middle school Montessori programs. So like there's a Montessori junior, senior high school, Compass Academy. Um, and then for elementary, I find elementary really interesting because I think oftentimes you could walk into an elementary school and not see that it is kind of learner-centered, human-centered because there are a lot of structures that feel like they might be the same, right? There's still a teacher who's doing a lot of the facilitation, et cetera, but it's in the pedagogy, it's in the how that the teachers are illuminating for young, for young people, how their learning is happening. Design 39 in San Diego is one that we often kind of um, you know, used as an example um, at Education Reimagined. Again, I think most Montessori programs, and especially because Montessori tends to do early childhood through kind of lower elementary really well. Um, but I would make sure that they're Montessori. One of the challenges of Montessori is it's not trademarked. So everyone likes to just say that they're Montessori schools. So I would be looking for you know folks that are really credentialed because the how of Montessori. So in St. Louis, City Garden, um, Montessori, I think is um, Annie Fisher, which is in uh, New Haven. And if you want, I can sort of try and send a list later. And so if there's a place for people to link or click or something, we can add to the list. But th those are a few. Well, I think uh, referring us to the Education Reimagined site, um, certainly people can um, check that out. Okay, um, I know you're working on a book. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? So I think a lot of the ideas that I've talked about today, so the working title of the book is The Future of Smart, and um, and it, my aim is for it to come out sometime later this year. It's been an interesting process um, about who gets publishing contracts, but The Future of Smart is really this idea, so it's kind of in three parts. The first is this zoom out, and let's take a look at some of the bigger trends around worldviews and beliefs um, that have shaped, that shaped the industrial model and that also shaped that other kind of thread of learning that is much more linked to the way that human beings have always educated their young, um, that sort of in modern parlance or in this three bucket approach that I talked about would be that far left and the far right bucket. So that's the first part of the book. Um, and so it's a history of ideas. And I know we don't love to spend a lot of time on ideas, but I think there's something really important about conscious competence, like understanding in very clear ways how we live inside of a context and sets of ideas and beliefs that we're not even aware of that shape how we do what we do in ways that we don't even question until somebody points it out to us. And then the second part of the book is kind of this three-part framework that I just described and kind of digs a little bit more into the, the research that developed that and then really talking about what is unique and distinguishing about each of these three categories so that we can try and really parse them apart and understand what they are. And then the third part is how do we get from where we are to where we want to go? And so I do talk a bit more about the sorts of things you just ask questions about, like what are the implications on this for 
adult preparation? What are the implications for this about accountability? What are the implications for how we credential learning, right? And so trying to give ideas for people who want to do this work to say, here are the things we need to be thinking about, both to invent or to create these new schools, but also to create the systems and structures that support them. And I, and I just want to you know do one little shout out too to educators, because everything I've been talking about is sort of grounded in this notion of schools or programs, because we all know that there are amazing educators every day who are out in classrooms and programs working with young people who are in that third bucket mentality. Um, in fact, I would say most of us go into teaching because that's where we sit. And the question is, how can we make it so that you are not constantly um, swimming upstream because the entire system that you're inside of is pulling you in a different way. And so you're trying to do this work and it's exhausting and tiring because, because you're having to sort of fight it, right? Which is where I think we sometimes get this image of some of the most teach successful teachers who do this kind of like shut the door and kind of do what they do for their young people and their principals and other people are trying to block and tackle, right? And give them some freedom and flexibility. So it's a question of systems and how we support educators to do that, to do work in that way, in sustainable ways. Sounds great. I want to read the book already. <laughs> it's not even, not even finished, but you'll have to let us know when, uh, when it's, you know, coming out and, and I'm sure we can, um, you know, uh, feature it here on the podcast at, at some point. I, I want to um, move kind of into the reflection part of this podcast because we are uh, we've we've talked about so much. There's like so much to think about here, and I would love to hear co-hosts. Let's start with you. What are some of the things that are coming up? Uh, what are what are you thinking about as a result of this conversation, Matt? You want to go first? Yeah, um, yeah. I just appreciate Olga. Thank you so much um, for sharing your thoughts, and and I appreciate your insight. I appreciate the, even the way that you're thinking about these things. And it's interesting you brought up your philosophy background and and now a lot of things make sense because the way you're thinking about things is is very deep and it's and it's very thoughtful. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you've said that, that resonates with me, um, but there's something you said early on, uh, go slow to go fast. It's not just, okay, we're going to go slow and we're just going to stay slow. It's we're going to go slow. We're going to get this right. We're going to be relational. We're going to do these things so that we can then go fast, so that we can then challenge. Because I think oftentimes what I've encountered is we sort of go slow and we stay slow, right? And and we're going to meet people where they're at. And I really appreciate the way you shifted that a bit. It's like we're going to downshift, right? I was riding my bike this morning and uh, and I downshifted sometimes and then to be able to go faster, right? And when I'm driving a car, I downshift to pass someone. And that's what I was envisioning as, as you were talking. And and I think that that's one of the uh, many takeaways and and just one of the things I, I really appreciate. So So thank you. I think one of my big takeaways here is that treating schools and students from a like really human centered point of view is so critical when we're thinking about how to kind of reshape and you know re rethink education it's i've i've been kind of clunking around with this idea of my own worldview as an education leader as one that is very human centered 
And the idea is that if we're looking at individuals from an asset perspective, we say, what are you bringing to the table? Whether you you are you know six months old or sixty five years old, and saying everybody has gifts, everybody has interests, everybody has desires to learn, to grow, to be, and if we push ourselves and our systems and our friends and everybody that we know to kind of remind them that, hey, like everybody has something amazing that they're bringing to the table. And let's remind ourselves of that. And let's develop systems of of learning and schools that capitalize on, on those amazing things. And it really, in my view, you can't go wrong when you do that. You know, you can't go wrong when you say to a high schooler or a middle schooler or an elementary schooler, what do you really want to learn about today? I think that question is at the heart of what is human centered and and really where we should be trying to move ourselves in education. Julie, what do you what are you thinking? about the teachers who are sitting there in the first bucket schools <laughs> um, as long as I have my buckets straight but I think I think those those teachers and there's so many of them they are the majority I think um, if you went to Olka's um, blog site the education potential educating yeah. educating Sorry. potential yeah educating potential that's it um, if you went there, and I know most schools have professional learning communities or learning collaboratives or, or something, um, if you got together and made once a month, you know, ask why letter grades and GPAs, um, why do we separate kids by age? Why do we have classrooms? Um, I think those would really spark some really interesting conversations to um, maybe move the needle, at least in your own personal professional mind. Um, to maybe capture what's next, um, where you are right now. Um, so many of us are in flux. Um, so maybe those big questions about finding your next school uh, might be tabled for now. But you know, doing with what you have, uh, doing what you can, uh, where you are, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking about. It's it's really cool. I encourage people to check it out. Ulka, what are you thinking? Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to formulate a thought in a way that's not going to be a paragraph. So I. We are stuck inside of one of the things that I've been struck by too around parents and this concern of like kids are going to fall behind, kids are going to be behind, kids are going to be behind. And part of me wants to say, look, we invented the game and we invented the construct. And I think the construct is flawed anyway, right? The idea that that somehow every kid and all kids are somehow progressing at the same pace in the same way at the same rate across all sorts of things. Like that's a big piece of kabuki theater anyway. Um so we've tied ourselves to this kind of post this modern European notion of like what rigor is and what the right pace is and where you're supposed to be for no other reason than that we did it. And so I think this minute, this like this moment is a chance for us to step back and to say, you know what, when it comes to what the world needs, we need everyone. It's funny, as soon as people turn 18 and they go to college or they go into their first job, you are allowed to be good at what you're good at. 
right? You're allowed to say, actually, my passion and my interest is X, and I'm not going to force myself to be an accountant if that's not what I want to do, or I'm not going to force myself to be a creative writer if that's not what I'm interested in. But up until that point in school, you're somehow measured against how well or how badly you do across these externally defined metrics. And so I think we need to give ourselves permission to say, let's use this opportunity. We're never going to be able to do everything at once. So let's take this moment of a year and let kids start to kind of have the conversations with themselves and us about like, what do you do when no one's telling you what to do? And what are you interested in? And what would you like to contribute to the world and actually begin to sort of like operate on that? Gosh, I'm going to become the best version of like who I am and what I'm interested in right now. And, and look at the lens of how do we help kids grow in that way, as opposed to obsessing about us not playing the game that we were supposed to. And I think everything that we know in the world about what employers are looking for and what the world is going to require, requires neurodiversity. I kind of say like ecological diversity, biodiversity is important to ecological systems and neurodiversity feels like it's really important to human ecosystems, especially when we don't know what we're going to need and what's going to be valuable. So let's let kids develop that sense of like how I'm smart. Um, and then, and, and all the human capacities and capabilities, like you had a, a robot that started this, this recording, right? Like technology and artificial intelligence are doing a lot more. And that makes it even more imperative that human beings develop the human skills that AI and technology don't have. And this moment, right, feels like a great one to help us develop this idea of creativity and entrepreneurship and connectedness and empathy, right? All those human skills. So let's see this as a, as a moment, an opportunity. So we always end our, our uh, episodes with some plugs. Co-hosts, I know you brought some plugs. I'll kick it off. I am going to plug a fellow podcaster's podcast. He was a guest of ours, Dr. Chris Unger, and he launched a seven-part series podcast called A Revolution in Education. Everybody should check it out. You can go to a revolutioneducation.buzzsprout.com. I'll toss the link into our podcast description. Matt, what do you want to plug? I'm going to plug Mark the Shark. My daughter recently got a fishing rod, and then <laughs> I got a fishing rod, and I don't know how to tie a knot, and Mark the Shark has been a life uh, saver. I I now know how to do the fisherman's knot, and I'm working on some other ones, um, and so it's been a lot of fun. Too fun. What about you, Julie? What are you going to plug? So I tried to, a couple times over the past couple of years, include podcasting for my students. And I thought I had it figured out until I found Soundtrap, which makes everything better and easier. So if you're into podcasting with your students, try Soundtrap. Cool. Super cool. And Ulka, we're going to drop your uh, your website, educatingpotential.com, into our description. But we would love for you to plug something else. What do you got for us? I have two. There's a book called The Master and His Emissary by a guy named Ian McGilchrist. Um, but if you don't want to read the book, there's an RSA animate called The Divided Brain. Six minutes, super interesting kind of way of thinking about the brain and how it influences the world. And the second is an article um, that just dropped in The Atlantic this week. And I love the title. It says, College Educated Professionals Are Capitalism's Useful Idiots. And it is an excerpted essay by a guy named Kurt Anderson, who has a book coming out called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. And I think, again, my brain with ideas and the history of ideas, I think it's really, um, really fascinating. Thanks, Ulka. That's awesome. Those will definitely go in our podcast description for sure. 
Ulka Joshi Hansen, it's been our pleasure to have you on Rethinking EDU. So many things you brought to this conversation that I deeply appreciate. And I know that um, our listeners will appreciate them as well. Everybody out there listening, thanks for tuning in as usual. Thanks for downloading our podcast. And just a heads up, we're going to be uh, adding our podcast to the Amazon podcast directory fairly soon here. So that's super exciting. They're just launching that directory in the uh, next few months and look for us on there. Otherwise, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.